Please pray with me. Lord, I, I suspect one of the reasons we punctuate our worship service with prayer is at the very least to be reminded that we, we are not able to carry out uh, anything on our own, but we need throughout to express dependence on you, maybe never more than when we are in the position of hearing the word. So I'm grateful to know there's no promise more surely given in Scripture than that you would give the Spirit to those who ask. And so, Lord, I ask, we ask, give us the Spirit to be at work in the heart that the Word would be applied. Lord, would you form Christ in us? Would he loom large in our affections? Would he be supreme in our life? Lord, for those of us here who are Christians, would we grow in Christ? And Lord, for those of us who are who are curious, Lord, would we accept Christ, put our faith in him, turn from all other trusts, that we might find rest and relief and salvation in the living God. Lord, be at work through the preaching of the word. It's too much for me. Um, I'm wholly inadequate. Uh, we're not wordsmithing here, but we are looking to you to apply the word and to give glory to your name for the good of your people and for the good of this city and indeed the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in 1722, the city council in Leipzig, Germany, convened uh, really with one item of business, and that is that they would uh, fill the position of Thomas Kantor, uh, the director of the St. Thomas Boys Choir at the church. Uh, the position at that time had already existed for over 200 years. It was a really big deal. Uh, it was a very important position, not only for the school, but for the church and for the whole city. And actually, they knew exactly who they wanted. They, they went after a guy who's still somewhat famous in classical music circles, a guy named George Philip Telemann, who had a job up in Hamburg. But when his bosses caught wind of it, they raised his salary and said, we really don't want you to go. But thankfully, they had a backup, a guy named Graupner. Uh, Johann Christoph Graupner, but when they extended the offer to him, his bosses did the same thing, raised the salary and said, we don't want you to go. And so they were down to their third stringers, and they were kind of depressed. In fact, one of the uh, city councilmen was on record complaining that since we cannot get the best, we will have to settle for average. And so they went after a young uh, composer and orchestra director in the small city of Cothen, Germany. And they were nervous. Uh, and they kind of let him know. They, before they took a final vote, they told this candidate that he would have to agree to maintain good order in the churches, that he would have to agree to not write compositions that were too long, um, that he would have to, in addition to the music duties, he'd have to teach Latin at the school. And they also wanted to let him know they were a little concerned about his theology because he had been serving in a church with Calvinist convictions, and the one he was coming to was more of a Lutheran church, so he could keep a lid on that. And finally, they just said, look, um, also you need to know that your quarters are dilapidated. They're rodent infested. Uh, the staircase up to where your family will live is missing a few stairs, and we have no plans to fix it anytime soon. But he took the job. And when he came on, he demonstrated an, out, an, an astounding level of productivity. He wrote, on average, more than one cantata a week. He also composed two great Easter passions, 
that were performed throughout the city and eventually throughout the country. And yet, just one year in, he had the temerity to say, would it be okay if I could have a say in who's being admitted to the school? And his bosses took that as impertinence and reduced his salary. And at one point, he was so frustrated, he started looking for other jobs until a new pastor arrived at the church and convinced this promising music leader by the name of Johann Sebastian Bach to stay on. You know, this church music thing isn't easy, right? It's not easy to be a, a church music leader. It's not easy to um, get into the topic of music in the church. There's, there's few touchier topics than what the church does with its music, what it expects of its leaders, what it puts into practice. And, you know, that's nothing new. Uh, the early church fathers had heated arguments about whether we should do what we just did in dismissing our kids to... A, a, a catechesis kind of time. You know, some of them thought that was really good, and others thought, no, they need to stay in the worship service. There was, in the 18th century, there were controversies over putting popular tunes to the singing of the Psalms. In the 19th century, there, were, there was the Victorian English choir controversy about whether or not churches should have choirs. And if you do have them, you know, should you put them in the back to support the singing of the church or put them in the front to kind of perform for the church? And of course, in our day, you know, there are the dreaded worship wars, the conflict between people who prefer either traditional or contemporary music, whatever all that means, you know, and then demand that the church favor and go with one or the other. And all of that, you know, has resulted in countless cases of churches splitting, pastors and staff getting fired, Christians being pitted against other Christians, all because of the music. And I want to be careful because a lot of what gets argued about is actually really important. You do have to make decisions, and you have to have a philosophy of ministry and operate from that. And I understand that. But, but I think what gets lost in the arguments about style and song selection and traditional and contemporary and all the rest is actually the thing that's most important. You know, knowing that I was preaching on this, I, I reached out to several church music leaders that I know and talked about all this stuff, and it was so helpful in getting me to think through it. But one comment really stayed with me in those conversations. It's kind of haunted me all week. Um, and that is uh, that the music of the church is a response. It's a response. So it seems that before we contend with the worship music of the church, we first must contend with the meaning of worship in the church. What does it mean? What does it mean to worship, to gather for worship? You know, first off, it's easy to become accustomed to kind of this thinking that music is the worship. You know, like the music and the singing is the worship part of the worship service, and then there's the stuff that, the other stuff we do. But one of the things I hope we will see in this series we're doing is that everything we do here is worship. Showing up is worship. Listening is worship. The prayers, the creed, the confessions, the peace, the collection, the reading and preaching of the word, the benediction, and the music is all worship. And so to kind of get our heads around the, the centrality of that, I, I want to enter this topic through one of the great calls to worship in the Bible, one of my favorite ones in Psalm 34. King David calls God's people to worship 
but he does it with this kind of curious invitation. He, he, he says, he invites God's people, he says, oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Now, what does it mean to magnify? I didn't understand this for a long time. Um, you know, on a very basic level, magnify just means to glorify. When we magnify something, uh, we become convinced ourselves and we tell others that some particular thing that we've encountered in some way is greater than anyone else appreciates or that I previously appreciated. You know, that thing has grown in our estimation, so what do we do? We extol its greatness. And, and we do this with all kinds of things. You know, I, I, I might magnify a vacation or a meal or, you know, a TV show so that I find myself telling anyone who will listen that they've got to check out some beach or some sandwich or some show that is binge-worthy, right? What am I doing there? I'm magnifying. I'm glorifying. I'm praising. I'm saying that this, that, or the other is worthy of more praise than it's currently getting from you. You got to get in on this. And here's the thing. Human beings are always about the business, always, inwardly and outwardly, of magnifying, of glorifying, of worship. Our hearts cannot help but be seized by glories, great and small, in such a way that that thing takes up a larger space in the heart and the affections and the values and our life and our priorities than they did previously. That is just true but it's also deeply tricky. And here's why, because even as the heart readily magnifies that which it finds worthy of praise, the heart is readily misdirected. We, we give our hearts away a little too easily. We look through the microscope when we should be looking through the telescope. And let me explain what I mean by that. What, what are you doing when you're looking through a microscope? Some people in this room, I suspect, make a living working through mi looking through microscopes. I did it about 30 years ago in high school and haven't really done it since. But, but let me explain you know, what I mean. Um, when you look through a micro microscope, you are fixing your vision on something small and you're making it bigger. The microscopic perspective is operative in the heart when we imagine that life and joy and peace and maybe even my existence hinge upon things that in fact aren't large enough to bear the weight of any of those things. You know, a job, a degree, a promotion, money, success of my children, my good reputation, some other thing. If you find yourself saying, you know, if this ever happened, I don't think I could go on living, you know, you have looked at that thing with, through the microscope. You've made a relatively small thing big in your heart. We've all done that. We all do that. And all those things in and of themselves are good things, desirable things, gracious gift. But when I look through my, the microscope of my heart, I have allowed other, what are otherwise good gifts to become and function something more like a god. They become bigger in my heart and my hopes than they ever should. And the biblical term for this is a little antiquated, but I think it's still kind of useful. The biblical term is idolatry. There, there's a useful little meditation on idolatry in Psalms 115 and 135 where idols are said to have mouths but don't speak, eyes but don't see, ears but don't hear, nor is there any breath in their mouth, but those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. 
What is, what is the psalmist describing there? He's, he's describing the microscopic outlook. He's saying, you know, here's this little inanimate carved thing, maybe beautiful, something I might put up on a shelf in my house, but I've made it bigger than it actually is. I imagine there's life in it, and there's not. And the devastating effect of giving glory to that thing, giving glory where it doesn't belong, is we end up, be, we end up becoming like the thing we give glory to. The psalmist says, those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. What happens is what I imagine will enhance my life, in the end, engulfs my life, swallows it up. David Foster Wallace, the writer, uh, not a Christian as far as I know, described this phenomenon pretty vividly in his famous 2005 graduation speech at Kenyon College where he said, there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in your life, then you will never have enough. You will never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Giving glory where it doesn't belong, assigning godlike importance to what is otherwise a good gift, making big in the heart that which is other relatively small can swallow you up. I think this is what the Lord was after when he referred to his disobedient people as stiff-necked people. You know, I don't think he was really saying, you know, you're just stubborn. I think he's saying you're becoming like your idols. You've, you've made these little wooden things. They're inflexible. They're lifeless. They're unresponsive. Um, and that's how you've become. Unresponsive, inflexible, lifeless. You've got a stiff neck. It's like you're turning to wood. So David's invitation to come and magnify the Lord with me is not only a call to worship the Lord. It is a call to be freed from worshiping that which is not the Lord. After all, what does it mean to magnify or to make bigger if it's not the call to give proper weight and value to that which is currently far too small in our estimation? He kind of assumes that. So just as it's our propensity to make small things bigger than they ought to be, the reverse is true. It's the propensity of the heart to make big things smaller than they truly are, namely God. In other words, David is saying, put down the microscope and pick up your telescope. In 1995, NASA decided to aim its Hubble telescope at what had appeared in all of human history to be an empty patch of sky in an area of the horizon called Ursa Major. And all of a sudden, they captured an image of over 3,000 galaxies that had up to that point been invisible. With that same telescope, they came to view the Eagle Nebula. You may have seen this picture. They call it the Pillars of Creation, which is 70 light years high and 50 light years wide, so that if you were to put you know, the Earth into that picture at scale, you would not be able to see it. In time, they came to peer into Hubble's ultra-deep field and viewed another 10,000 galaxies they had yet to see. Telescopes work to magnify things in such a way that that which previously seemed distant or invisible is brought near and is seen for what it is. 
that which seemed small is revealed to be truly great. That's at the heart of worship, that we who have this inveterate bent toward making God small in our hearts, toward swapping Him out, toward giving glory where it doesn't belong, the heart of worship is to see Him as He truly is, to magnify Him, to give Him the glory, the lot, and the honor that's due His name. That is the drumbeat of Scripture. Worship the living God. Give Him glory. And I got to tell you, you know, for a long time, I struggled with that drumbeat. I mean, you know, this... The fact that the Lord is always urging his people to praise him, always, you know, nearly demanding it, has struck me a little bit like, you know, an insecure teenager about to head out to prom, you know, fishing for compliments on the dress. You know, like, why, is, why does God want me to always say nice things about him? But C.S. Lewis, as he has on many things, helped me out a lot on this. He observed that all of us are conscious of a desire that no natural happiness will satisfy. We're all conscious of a desire that no natural happiness will satisfy. That's the tricky thing about desire. And, and maybe you've experienced this. Even after it's been indulged, you're always left wanting more. We're always in pursuit, never quite in possession. We love the beauty of a New Mexico sunset. We love the glory of a coastline, the pleasures of a book, the sound of beautiful music, the satisfaction of a good meal, but it never is quite enough to enjoy those things, the beauty or the story of the song. There's that sense in which we want to enter those things, right? And we desire entry even more than enjoyment because we were made to enter in to an intimate and eternal relationship with the beauty behind the beauty, with the glory behind the glory, with the weight behind what is truly worthy. Human beings were made, as some of the old fathers in the faith put it, fundamentally to enjoy God and glorify Him forever. And that doesn't mean eliminating the pleasures of this life, not at all. It means that we no longer elevate those pleasures to life itself, but enjoy them as good gifts from a gracious God. You know, the Corinthian church was famously out of control when it came, and came to indulging in worldly pleasure. They ate too much. They drank too much. They would fall into bed with pretty much anyone who wanted to do it. They couldn't even take the Lord's Supper without getting drunk. But wildly, even with all that going on, Paul never says, all right, enough pleasure. Fold your hands. Bow your heads, sleep on a board, crawl over glass, shave a tonsure on your head, eat your gruel, take your vows, and you know, your vows of celibacy and show me some piety. He never does that. He never urges them to cease enjoyment of the good things in life. What he says instead, in effect, is quit settling for the counterfeit. He urges them to put glory, in other words, where it belongs. So that as he tells them in his first letter in the 10th chapter, as we live our lives, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, do everything to the glory of God. God alone deserves the glory because of who he already is and what he has already done. And our worship is a response to that. That reality defines and directs what we do. A response to the greatness of God, the glory of God, the grace of God, the, the giver of all good gifts. And this brings me back to the music of the church, if I was ever there in the first place. <laughs> you 
You know, it's been said that the Christian faith is really the only faith in which there is, as a regular part of worship, congregational singing. Not, not just expert music, not only that, but, but everyone music. That's not to say that other faiths don't have music, and, and much of it is, is beautiful, but if you were to visit a Hindu temple or a Buddhist temple or a Gurdwara or a mosque, as, I, as I've had the privilege to do, the, the music is often confined to the performance of experts. You, you know, there's an expert sitar player, a trained cantor. You know, oftentimes uh, the music is consigned to private chanting or singing. And, and I think the reason that the Christian faith is an everyone singing kind of faith um, is because our worship is not predicated on getting from God through the excellence of what we do. It is instead built on receiving what is excellent from God by grace, from what he has already done in Christ. And hear, please hear me. Um, I'm so grateful for excellence in music. It's a good value. This church is in possession of an embarrassment as rich, of riches as far as that goes, as we've already experienced this morning and every Sunday. But that value should not displace the central place for everyone to worship. For people like me and maybe you who aren't so musically excellent, who can't play an instrument, who can't carry a tune in a bucket and will never be asked to sing a solo in the choir. There's, you know, and because of what God has given, because worship is a response, there's as much glory in the church in loud and enthusiastic, off-key congregational singing and babies crying, then there, then there is, as there is in a, in a Bach fugue. In 1988, I was a sophomore in high school, and the, and the L.A. Dodgers won the World Series that year, and the standout hero of that series was a pitcher named Oral Hershiser. He won the Cy Young. He was the World Series MVP. He was Sports Illustrated Athlete of the Year. He even got a gold glove for his position. And I remember seeing him on Johnny Carson the day after they won uh, the World Championship. And, you know, Carson's interviewing him, and, he, and he's talking about his game. And, and, and Johnny Carson said, you know, I read something in the paper that when you get a little distressed and want a little control, you sing to yourself on the mount. I, I heard you sing, you sing hymns? And Hershiser heard that question, but he didn't answer it. He sang it. He sang what he sings, what he sang on the mound, not to himself, but to the Lord. He sang the doxology. Um, just like we sang a few minutes ago, but, he, but it was wobbly. It was off pitch. There's nothing worthy of Hollywood. There's nothing worthy of the studio audience or Johnny Carson or anybody else. But you could tell as he sang it in that moment, that he wasn't singing it to Johnny Carson, and he didn't care about the studio audience or the millions of people watching TV. He was singing to the Lord. It was beautiful. Well, you might be wondering if I'd ever get to Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5. <laughs> you know, worship music figures heavily in these passages, especially the singing of God's praises. Uh, they're parallel passages. The most obvious parallel is in a phrase that is uh, exactly the same in both those passages that has to do with what Christians sing uh, in that we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, theologians have spilled a lot of ink on what all that means, but it seems to me that this just refers to, to the fact that the church employs a wide range of music. 
Everything from the songs you find in the Bible, in the Psalter, to songs that have become part of the tradition of the worship of the church, to songs that are written yesterday. And, you know, it should be noted that there's a great tradition in the church going back millennia where uh, church musicians take the best of whatever's out in the culture, wherever that can be found, and utilize that for worshiping God. You, we wouldn't have songs like A Mighty Fortress is Our God or Hark the Herald Angels Sing or Rock of Ages were it not for the fact that the people who wrote those songs felt completely free to steal the tunes from pub sing-alongs and theater music and classical music and everything else. But Paul is on to a whole lot more than just what kind of songs we ought to sing. The, the, the focus of both of these passages is actually the heart of the worshiper. In particular, what fills the heart to the end that we would praise the Lord with gratitude. In the, in the Ephesian passage, the emphasis is that the Word of God would dwell in His people richly, stirring thankfulness in our hearts to God. That is to say that, that you know, what's in the heart, apprehending the Word of God, the story of the gospel, is, is like the fuel that drives the pistons of praise. You know, that we're not dwelling upon our own story or our own goals or our own desires, but we're fixed on and enjoying the redemptive story of the Bible so that God's Word is at work in us and it's moving and it's prompting us and it's causing us to relish and rely on and rejoice in the gospel of Jesus Christ together. This is why the Scriptures, the reading and especially the preaching of God's Word, take such a central place in worship that the Lord would be magnified in our hearts. But the parallel passage is really important. The Colossian passage, the accent is on being filled with the Spirit, singing and making melody to the Lord with our hearts, with thankfulness in our hearts to God, so that whatever we're doing, we do it for God's glory in the name of Jesus, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Word of God in the heart, the Spirit at work in the heart, prompting praise and thanks. And I, I want to pay attention to the order of that. The word that dwells richly in the heart by the Spirit creates worship. Paul never, you, you will never find instructions for worship in the Bible that says worship in this way in order to get the Spirit. Paul never says that. He says that as those who have been graciously given the Word of God and have received the gospel and along with the Spirit, sing, praise, raise your voice in gratitude to the living God. And look, I think there's a word here to be said, too, about seeking this, about being hungry and thirsty when we come to worship, about pressing in and asking, even as those who have received the Spirit, for the Lord to give the Spirit in greater measure, to come to those who may have believed the gospel a long time ago, but to say, Lord, um, I need more gospel. I need to hear it again. It was preached on Sunday, and I forgot it on Monday. I forgot it on Sunday afternoon. Refresh me with that. And notice what happens when God's people rely on the Word and the Spirit, when we're responding to the good news of the gospel, when we're prompted to gratitude towards the Lord. God gets glory, but His people enjoy grace. There's a lot of good stuff going on among us in the praising of God. Paul mentions teaching and admonishing, that is to say that biblical truth is being delivered even as we're being disabused of, you know, wrong thinking, even as we're being driven to repentance and faith. 
And there's a great spirit of freedom here. Paul says, whatever we do, do it for Christ. And wildly, you might even say miraculously, there is even joyful mutual submission. I mean, what a dagger that is to the whole worship wars thing. In word-centered, spirit-reliant worship, somehow my opinions and my preferences and what I perceive to be my rights are gladly laid aside, given up for the good of others, for the glory of God. When I was in the early stages of church planting about eight years ago, we had, um, there were a couple of guys in our little group that were, you know, frankly, I'm kind of intimidating. You know, one guy was a retired Texas state judge. Another guy was a retired uh, oil guy. And the oil guy, you know, was the oldest among us, the most Presbyterian of us all. And he uh, said, John, I want to take you to lunch. I want to talk about a few things. This was before we got going with like public worship. We sit down in this place and he, and he says, John, I want to talk to you about music. And I've got to admit, I was like, inside, I'm like, here we go. The demand for traditional music. What am I going to do with this? And he asked me, he looked me in the eye and he said, John, are you planning on setting up some kind of rock band or something in this church? And I told him, I said, well, actually, no. You know, and I described to him my philosophy of how we would do our music and he heard me out a little bit and then he interrupted me. And he said, well, I just want you to know that having a rock band would be really, really hard for me. But if that's what you think we need, to reach this place with the gospel, I want you to know I'm behind it 100%. Love of the gospel of Jesus Christ and longing that as many people would come to know him and give him glory as possible created in this dear man, you know, a posture of submission out of reverence for Christ. Luke 19 records the story of Jesus' triumphal entry when he rode into Jerusalem on a colt. Um, you might remember this story if you're familiar with it. While the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. And, and Luke says they were singing Psalm 118. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And as all this was going on, off to the side, there were some religious leaders who didn't like it one bit. It's not, just, it's not that they had a problem with singing in the Psalms. They probably were fine with that. Their problem was that the object of the praise was directed squarely at Jesus. They didn't like that he was being celebrated as the actual content of that song. Celebrated as Messiah, as God's anointed, entering God's city to take up the throne of David and usher in God's saving kingdom. So they insisted that Jesus rebuke his disciples for giving glory where they were sure it didn't belong. And Jesus looked at those religious leaders, some of whom would shortly come to be complicit in his death, and said, I will not. If I were to do that, the very rocks would cry out. I just want to appreciate for a minute how Jesus turns kind of the typical question upside down. He, he doesn't really say anything about their singing praises to him. Instead, he contemplates what might possibly happen if they didn't sing praises to him. And it's so much bigger than the stuff that typically 
wraps churches around the axle of what particular songs are to be sung and how they're to be sung and the style and the arrangements and the choir and the, all the stuff. Jesus contemplates the possibility that somehow creation itself would be disrupted. I mean, almost as if, imagine, you know, we showed up here this morning and, you know, all, all, all the musicians up here just said, you know what, I'm just not into it. I'm just, we sing every Sunday. We've been doing it for years. We do it every time. Let's just leave that out. And all of you say, that sounds good to us. And then, and then you know, having made that decision, we begin to hear a little rumble outside. <laughs> you know, and the ground starts shaking, and all of a sudden we start hearing music coming from an actual kind of literal rock band. That's what Jesus is contemplating. And, and look, I don't know what tradition you come from. I don't even know if you're a Christian, but I know this, that we were made in the image of God, made for intimate relationship with him through Jesus Christ, his son. We were made to praise him. That is a creational reality. And contemplating that not happening, you know, is uh, kind of mind-boggling. Jesus alone is worthy of it. He gathers us here graciously, not to make demands of us so that we would, through what we do, become pleasing to him, but that we would rest in the reminder that Jesus has fully and graciously met all the demands, forgiving our sins, fulfilling all righteousness, making us pleasing before the Father, securing for us life and life abundant and eternal and joyful and lasting rewards. As I read earlier, this is the song we'll be singing in heaven. Not, we won't be thinking about our worship. We will be saying, worthy are you, Jesus, for blessing and honor and glory that that might be yours forever. Let's pray as we prepare to go to his table together. Lord, as is often the case, this is too much for us. Uh, but it's not too much for you, and we're grateful to know that you do not deny what we need, but you deliver everything we need for life and godliness. Lord, would you forgive us for diminishing this great gospel, our great Savior, the great God who sustains the universe even by the word of his power, even to this moment? And Lord, would you give us the grace that we might be people of praise that we would give you the glory and the honor and the law do your name, Lord, so that you would get glory and so that blessing would flow, not just to people in this room, but, Lord, indeed to this city. The world needs communities of praise. This is what we were made for. Lord, would you give us grace to glorify you and enjoy you forever. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.